If you could have your Bibles out um, and have it open to those pages, I'm sure it'll help you as we go through this text. But let's pray that God will speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are a living word. We thank you that you are alive today. And we thank you that you will speak to us. And we pray that you will speak to us not for our sake, but for your glory's sake, that we may bear your name that we may live our lives differently, that you may get the glory and praise that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. According to a theological dictionary, um, self-righteousness is the concept of personally developed ethics as one standard of salvation. Personally developed ethics as one's standard of salvation. It's the idea that if you really, really try hard enough, that you would be good enough, that God would accept you. Um, God would uh, would find you acceptable. And many of you might think that this is not a problem for you. I mean, after all, we, we are people who believe in Christ's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, not self righteousness. But let's think about the kind of people that is that are sort of susceptible to this problem. Certainly, it's not uh, those who are at the bottom of the moral ladder, right? Uh, Like the tax collector. The the problem of self-righteousness is really endemic to people who are good, who really try to be good. Um, People who who are regarded and who regard themselves as great Christians, people with great self-discipline, people who try really hard to get things right, people who think they are on the right, people who do the right things, People who might have achieved a certain level of righteousness themselves. It's those people. It's really people like you. And it's people like me who have these problems, who who are prone to feeling of self-righteousness. And I don't want you to um, take this uh, in the wrong way, but if you have not been tempted to be self-righteous, then I want to ask you, are you trying hard enough? (laughs) Are you trying hard enough? If you're perpetually struggling with your sin, if you're, con- if you're never like the Pharisee, but you're always like the tax collector, what's wrong with you? Why? Why? How could this be true? When you are striving to be a good Christian and escaping this feeling of self-righteousness seems so elusive because just when you think, oh yeah, I'm not self-righteous, that's probably when you are self-righteous. And I say this because I struggle with this, because I think often people find me self-righteous in my conversation um, with others, and maybe I I sound self-righteous right now. But that's the problem with self-righteousness, isn't it? Because you basically are getting many things right as you are self-righteous. And because you're getting so many things right, it breeds uh, false confidence. The tax collector, as a person who cheated people for a living, as a person who betrayed Israel and was serving the Roman Empire, people constantly made them uh, feel like they were not righteous. They were sinners. They were betrayers. They were terrible people. They didn't have the luxury to feel self-righteous. But those uh, those of us who are struggling to be more like Jesus like most of us, will at some point struggle with, uh, with self-righteousness. 
For most, um, uh, for, for, mo- for most people, this is not a problem in the church, right? As you come to church, you look around and you see people, just great and holy people, and you kind of go, "Yeah, actually, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not there quite yet." Um, I see people who are, uh, yeah. <laughs> I see people who are great, and I think, yeah, I can't be. I mean, I'm just, I have so, ma- so, so, so much more to go. But this is a problem. This will become a problem when you interact with people who are not like you, people who think differently from you, people who argue with you, um, people whose opinions and theology is different from you, whose lifestyles not like your own. And when I argue with them, and when I talk to them, I think often, unfortunately, the message that I get across to them is, yeah, I'm not like you. And it gets interpreted um, in the terrible way, yeah, I'm better than you. Isn't that, isn't that what the Pharisee says about the tax collector? God, I thank you that I'm not him. I'm not like all these other people, that I'm not like the tax collector, that I'm better than them. And Jesus says in the very beginning of our, uh, our, our reading in verse 9 uh, that he's talking to people like that, some who were confident of their righteousness and look down on everybody else. But if this is a problem for people like us, and how do we escape this problem, uh, feeling of self-righteousness? And have you noticed that people, there are people who are really godly, who don't seem to have this problem, who don't make people feel rubbish when they talk to them. Jesus was one of them, wasn't he? Jesus was one of them because the tax collectors, prostitutes, gluttons, sinners of all kinds were drawn to Jesus. They came to Jesus because they felt comfortable around Jesus, not because Jesus compromised his holiness, but because there was a sense that he really loved them, that there was something different about him, that they were drawn to him. They were drawn to be like him. But there are others, too. In this room, there are others, uh, people like that, people who um, are holy, people who are, who've uh, sort of achieved much uh, 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 higher standard of righteousness than I, who people who seem to accept and welcome people, people um, who's different from them, people whose lives are different, without, making, without compromising their holiness. How can this be? I think, um, obviously, the, 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 the fairly obvious antidote um, that we see from this text is have the right comparison, having the right comparison. The tax collector, where the tax collector went wrong was that he compares. He compares himself with other people. Uh, he compares himself, really, I mean, he's, this is a straw man, isn't it? He compares himself to robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and then tax collectors. And you see how there are three parties in that prayer as he talks to God. God, He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. He, he's talking to God, but really there are three parties involved. God, him, and other people. And he's comparing to himself to other people. And I'm sure that's what we do as well. And how do you think you compare with other people in a moral scale? We think that we're above average morally, probably, right? And if you think that, if you think that you're above average, it's, 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 it might be that you are, and there's a good chance that you are not. <laughs> um, 
Sevenson survey in 1981 found that 93% of Americans who were surveyed put themselves, 93% of the people surveyed put themselves above average in their driving skills. 93% above average. That just can't, can't be true. And if you think you're above average here, I mean, it might be that you are, and chances are that you are, but it might be that you're not. <laughs> but even if you are, even if you're in the 10%, even if you're in the one, top 1%, and, uh, the standard is not other people. Standard is not comparison with other people. Standard is much higher. God's standard is much higher. God says, be holy as I am holy. And if you think that's just the Old Testament, where God says, be holy as I am holy, that's not true. Jesus says something very similar. Jesus says, he tells his disciples at the end of uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.45. Be perfect as your, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God wants us to be like him. And as long as we take God seriously in our life, we, will not be, we won't fall into the temptation of being self-righteous. In fact, as we grow more and more sanctified, as we grow more and more to be like Him, we will be more and more aware of how far we short of God's great glory, how far we, short, uh, we come short in, in comparison to His holiness. And that's the key. People who love Jesus, people who are, many people are like this here. People who love Jesus have one standard because they want to be like him. And that's the only standard that they have. And so they cannot feel self-righteous. Their standard is God's standard. So antidote one, have the right comparison. And our comparison is to God and God alone. But um, the tax collector, what the tax collector got right is that he is comparing himself to God. I mean, even tax collectors could probably have said, well, thank God that I'm not like these adulterers and, and, and evildoers and murderers, right? He, he could probably have said that. There's always the, the, the lower comparison to be made. But in his prayer, there are only two parties. He goes, he stands afar, he beat his breast, he's looking down, he says, God, have mercy on me a sinner. There's only God and him have the right comparison. And as we do that, that sense of guilt that comes and actually will long for us, uh, long in us, to uh, uh, long for grace um, that God gives us. The tax collector wanted mercy. His prayer is simple, but his um, it's certainly heartfelt. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, it's our second point now. And when we sin, our sin reminds us that apart from God's grace, apart from God's grace, um, when we sin, uh, sin reminds us that we are, um, apart from God's grace, sinners in, God's, in need of God's mercy, that we are sinners. And that's how the, sec- the tax collector felt, that he felt like a sinner in need of God's grace. And, uh, God's grace. and that's who we are, and that's how we, how, how, who we would be, how, how, uh, who we would continue to be if we, weren't for God, if we weren't for God's grace. 
But self-righteousness, the problem with that is it makes us forget who we are, who we would be. It fools us into thinking that we deserve God's grace, that God's lucky to have us in, our, uh, in his team. But as Jerry Bridges uh, in his book, uh, Discipline of Grace, writes, famously writes, your worst days are never so bad that you're, um, you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need, the need of God's grace. We are who we are because of God's grace. We've been rescued and will never grow out of God's grace. Uh, maybe, I think uh, people who find this really hard are people who have been Christians for a long time, you know, for whom being a Christian is such a part of their DNA. It's hard for them to imagine what it would be like if we weren't for God's grace. And many of you are like that. I have a friend uh, named Heather who's now a, a pastor uh, in Indiana who used to um, teach a youth group with me. And she did actually most of the work. I showed up. It was a horrible partnership. Um, but she, I remember her giving a testimony once to the youth group. Um, and uh, it, it, was a, it, it stuck with me. This is what she said. She said that she was training. Um, it was a, when she was a teenager, she was training to go into Peru, go to Peru uh, as part of a short-term mission trip team. And as part of the training, people were giving their testimonies to each other. And as she was hearing these testimonies, she, she felt envious because everybody else seemed to have such a dramatic story to tell. But she, uh, her father was a pastor, and she said that she accepted Christ when she was four. She remembers that she accepted Christ when she was four, which I think is amazing. But, um, but she accepted Christ when she was four, and so she just didn't have this a dramatic testimony to tell. So she was praying, and she was envious, but she was praying. And towards the end of the training week, um, God gave her a vision in the time of worship, in the vision, this is what um, she wrote me just recently. I asked her uh, for her um, testimony, and this is what she wrote. In the vision, I saw a young woman about my age. She was depressed. She spent a lot of time reading and trying to prove that she was smarter than everybody else, but also struggled with simply not understanding the point of existence. Then the vision shifted, and she was on a cross, dying in her own misery. Then Jesus came to that cross and took her down. And he got on the cross in her place. And as he died, he looked upon her in love, and she became me at four years old. Then I saw this process happening for many people I knew. Jesus showed me that all of us are radically saved, and we simply need the eye of, eyes of gratitude to realize this. Isn't that amazing? What she saw uh, as she was praying was herself. If she had, it hadn't been for God's grace. She saw herself depressed. She saw herself trying to um, uh, 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 feel smarter than everybody else to explore uh, the, the meaning of existence. And she saw herself dying on the cross and Jesus taking her place on the cross. And she realized that she is who she is because of grace. Because of grace. Of course, um, this isn't to say all Christians, all non-Christians are living just miserable lives out there. 
But we have to we remind ourselves that we are who we are because of God's grace. So antidote number two is, it just, we're still number two, <laughs> to remember who we were and who remember who we would be apart from God's grace. And the apostle Paul constantly, I think was another person like this, was constantly, um, he, he constantly reminded himself of, of who he was, who he would have continued to be if, apart from God's grace. He wrote to his uh, readers in Corinth, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He says, that's who I would be if it weren't for God's grace. But by grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. You know, I'm not wanting you to go home and say, oh, I'm just a really terrible sinner. That's all I am. I'm not saying that because you are great, and many of you have, are, are great because of God's grace. But it's because of God's grace. And we have to remember who we would be and who we were apart from God's grace. God's grace worked powerfully within Apostle Paul. And God's grace is working within you as well to be more like to, to make you to be more like him. And that will go far, I think, uh, of curing us of self-righteousness, won't it? When we argue with people who don't believe in God, when we're convinced uh, that we're right about our theology, about, about our life, when we engage in public debates with people whose opinions are different, different, whose opinions are different from the biblical view of how life should be, about homosexuality, divorce, premarital sex, whatever it is, we have to remember that we are who we are because of God's grace and only because of God's grace. And we have no right to feel superior to other people, to look down, to feel smug, to, feel, uh, to, to sound nasty towards people who aren't in, in the truth. We are who we are because of God's grace. And finally, um, self-righteousness is really dangerous I think, I think this is the biggest reason why this is so dangerous. I think it's mostly because it devalues what God has done for us. Jesus tells the story of the Pharisees and the tax collectors, and give, uh, he gives this verdict in the end, in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and, all, uh, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Did you notice that it's actually who God who justified, right? It's the sinner who went home justified. It's because God is the one who does the justification for us. God justified the tax collector because he was in need of God's mercy, because he asked for it, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what the next story is about, really, the story about the children, Children were not considered really people worthy of Jesus' time back then. In fact, the whole Roman world, the whole Greek world, treated children with contempt. You know, Aristotle thought that um, kids weren't really kids. The kids weren't really human beings. Not yet. I mean, they thought, he thought that really they will eventually become human beings, but they're not quite there yet. And so they shouldn't be treated like that. 
So it made sense that the disciples prevented the, uh, the children uh, from coming to Jesus. But Jesus welcomes them. In fact, he elevates them. He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such people, uh, kids such as, uh, as these. You see, Luke has placed these two stories together, and actually next story as well, together to make a point. It's not those who stand proudly and say, God, I have done all these things, who go away justified. It's those who are crawling, people who are in need, people who are on their knees, people who are asking for God's mercy, people who know that they can't do anything to deserve it. Those are the people who go go home justified, people who know that they can't do it. And of course, that makes sense when we look at the story of the gospel. The righteousness that allows us to stand before God is not something that we can achieve by ourselves. The story of the rich young ruler, if you see the, uh, our text, it, that, that comes right after the story of, uh, with, with the kids, um, I think also illustrates this point. When the ruler goes home, remember, the disciples cry out, this young ruler who did everything right except that he couldn't give up his wealth. Um, the disciples cry out, well, who then can be saved? If not this guy, if not this guy, who then can be saved? Jesus replies, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And you know, it's only possible because Jesus is punished for our sins. He takes on God's wrath on our behalf. It's only possible because Jesus lives a perfect life. And the reward for perfect life is eternity with God himself. But he doesn't take that reward. He takes the punishment, but then he has given us the reward. That's why it's possible. And when we think that we are somehow justified because of what we do, because of what we have done, because of life that we lived, we're not only gravely mistaken, but it also cheapens what God has done for us in Christ. Think about it this way. Have you ever given somebody uh, a gift that's worth a lot? A lot. Let's say that you got something for your friend that's worth, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. It's an extremely generous gift. You've saved up all your life. You worked hard for it, and you're excited to give it, and you give this gift to your friend. And your friend takes this gift, and he feels bad. And he goes, ah, I feel so bad that I've received this gift. Um, Can I give you $100? You see what that is? It cheapens the value of that gift. What Christ has done for us is priceless. And when you think that you can offer that gift back to God because you live your life in a certain way, that it cheapens the value of Christ's righteousness, Christ's life lived and died and risen again. It's something that we can never pay back, never. Because the gift of Christ is that amazing. And that would cure us, once again, if we reflect on God's grace, right? That's the third antidote. Reflect on the grace of Christ. When you feel self-righteous, think about what Christ has done 
for you. I'm not a poem kind of a person, but I love uh, I love this uh, poetry by um, poem by um, George uh, George Herbert um, because I think it really encapsulates what what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to end uh, by just reading this poem by uh, George Herbert. Um, It's called Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me, grow slack. From my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it does deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. That's what God does for us. As we come, he invites us to come and taste him, to be his guest, because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray.